0: A few years ago, during our annual three-week retreat at the Chazwa Monastery in the Sagain Hills of Burma, uh, a few of us were taken by the, the abbot that we, that we co-teach with to a, a more remote monastery uh, north along the Irrawaddy River back up into the sagain Hills, more secluded. Um, al- along with us was uh, the Venerable Usumana, who was translating at that Chazwa retreat. And as is often customary during these retreats the last nine years, we've been very lucky to be taken to uh, great teachers, uh, Sayamas nuns or Sayadaws monks, shortly before they pass on. This was one such instance. He was a hundred years old. He was also uh, blind, and he could barely, barely hear. So when we were being, he was just sitting there, walking into the room felt like walking in into light. Uh, the space was filled with metta, compassion, joy, and a serene, uh, profound equanimity. He just sat there sensing everything, uh, somehow really acutely, uh, to be introduced to us, his attendant had to, to yell in his ear so loud that it was, it was piercing to one's own ear. One felt like putting their fingers in their ears. Yeah. This is Stephen Smith from Hawaii. And he'd say, what? And <laughs> it would be repeated. And likewise with Sumana, who, who was um, Jake then, and, and, the, and a couple of other... Uh, co-teachers from Australia. I don't know how long we were there. It was quite a timeless uh, space as these um, connections often, often are. Uh, but one at a time, he had each of us come forward to where he was sitting. Uh, and he'd reach out his hand to take and feel our hands. And simultaneously I felt in his hands both uh, the warmth of metta and and the coolness of serenity and, and metta too, like a cool metta, serene, unconditional love, just through his hands and it just sent shivers through my body. And at the end, before we left, however long it was, a few hours perhaps, he, he then had each of us come up again and, and made a blessing, a very simple blessing, like a metta blessing. He said, may you be happy, may you be peaceful may you be free from even one unskillful mind moment that was it it was just such a, a pervading blessing that i felt speechless all the way back to the monastery at Chazwa. i don't know what his practice was but the result, either the path to it was paved with metta compassion empathetic joy equanimity or certainly it's a result of vipassana practice as well one comes to this these brahma viharas from either way it can be it can be the platform out of which one practices to the Vipassana insights and liberation, and it's certainly the quality of mind and heart uh, arising from liberation, or liberating, deep liberating insights. The tonight, just to provide a, a large context, a bigger picture, I want to talk about these, um, what are sometimes called the four immeasurables, a or the Brahma-vihara. Brahma-vihara is meaning um, divine abidings. Brahma-divine. Vihara-dwelling or abiding. It's The sense of, uh, as I was saying in the instructions yesterday morning, to the original teachings of the Buddha, the earliest discourses were simply to call up the metta, abide in it, Abide in the mind-heart uh, glow uh, of, of metta and pervade it. So This has significant meaning even in the definition, divine abiding. We're learning how to peel the layers off of the heart, away from the heart. The layers are barriers of separation, of, of um, uh numbing out to feelings, protective layers of fear, of anger, and so forth, the the crust that can grow over, like barnacles, over the nature of the heart. Uh, And as we build up a a safe enough external container and internalize that, it feels safe enough to let those uh, crusty old barnacles start to break up and fall away. And we have left this this raw energy of unconditional love, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, which are themselves powerful protectors. We can discard the the old ones, the ones we brought into our lives uh, when our wisdom was young. Every wholesome mind moment of consciousness all these seeds of the brahma viharas are there and that's why we can immediately begin this meditation by picking one of the seeds of the metta seed the form of metta in our mind stream and make it the subject of meditation and it grows that seed it makes it stronger and stronger and it opposes the opposite of metta, resentment, and fear, aversion, ill will, anger. And as long as that keeps, we keep focused on that, those opposing states don't enter that moment of consciousness. And when they do, and we notice that, and we're able to return to the focus on the, the metta seed, these oppositional forces naturally fall away. These four states, in the, in the Pali metta and compassion, in the Pali karuna, empathetic joy is mudita, and equanimity, or balance of mind, is uh, upeka. Uh, We could call them the most sublime, most spiritual of our emotional body, of our emotional life. Very powerful and purifying emotions. They're emotions to pursue, to develop. And that's why practices have been made of them. In fact, these practices were a part of the uh, Indian life long before the Buddha came, and when the Buddha had his realization of the middle of the middle path uh, through insight, he merely incorporated the the vihara practices as a way leading to insight, and as a way of life, and pointed out that. These qualities are the expression of either a moment's liberated mind or the liberated mind. That is, the nature of the heart is compassion and love and joy and equanimity. So they're very refined levels of mind. Uh, and they begin, as we know, as we see, in, in sort of in fleeting ways, they're mixed. You know, we see what's what it's called the near and far uh, enemies of metta, what looks like metta, a masquerade of metta, but some form of conditionality or attachment. Whereas the true metta is there's no wanting there. It's not any kind of a wanting love or ex ex a love with expectation or possessive love or self referencing love. It feels pure, it feels restful, it feels like home. Brahma-vihara, divine or sacred abode, divine home. It feels like that, whereas the, the various forms of expectation or condition or attached love, you know, is not quite that feeling. There's a bit of anxiety there. And then we come become really familiar, as is part of the practice, with you know, the purging, uh, purifying element that lifts up these crusty coverings, the fear and the aversion, the ill will, very much a natural part of the practice. And wisdom is gained and metta grows uh, by facing these states, not condemning them, not uh, demonizing them. Every so often we get a, you know, a, uh, a scent or a taste of the luminous mind that for a moment is completely at rest in the respective brahmavihara so that is that that's when metta grows to such a strength that uh, it's matured into the brahmavihara it feels effortless it feels it seems superfluous to even use phrases or to use categories. There is simply this deep and natural and strong abiding. And it's effortless that it pervades out. It's the generosity nature of unconditional love. Its nature is to spread, to connect. We could call these Brahma-viharas all relational practices. Practices of connectedness. They reveal the deep and profound interconnectedness of all beings, all of life. It's nothing we figure out. It's just revealed. And so at those moments where, you know, that luminosity, that brilliance uh, arises, it's, a, it's such a gift. It feels like you know grace. But in fact, it's just the natural... Mind, heart, as it is. And we're at rest in it. And its nature is to go out unconditionally in all directions. We also, you know, have, fortunately, have the form uh, where we can work categorically with the strongest subjects. So we begin where it feels right, as Michelle was talking about last night a benefactor or a dear friend or ourselves, wherever we can, that gets the ember uh, going. And then through the spirit of repetition, uh, of continuously applying the mind, inclining the mind, or if you use phrases, or holding on to the felt sense or visualizations, that's like uh, fanning the flame. It continues, it continues to grow. In the Majjama Nikaya, one of the, um, the what's known as the middle course, um, middle length discourses of the Buddha, a householder named uh, Dasama asked Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and his personal attendant the last 25 years, of the Buddhist uh, teaching in his life. Um, Dasana asked him if there was one practice that can liberate the mind, uh, destroy the harmful influences, and uh, yield the unsurpassable freedom uh, from bondage. And Ananda said, yes, I can name 11 of them right now, but I'll tell you just one. And he said, uh, a bhikkhu, it's all of us who practice, a bhikkhu who continuously relates to the beings in one direction with a mind endowed with love, then likewise to the beings uh, in the second, third, and fourth direction, and in the same way to the beings above, below, uh, across, and all around. Uh, She continuously relates everywhere and equally to the entire world of beings with a mind endowed with unconditional love, a mind that is untroubled, that's free from anger, that's vast, that's enlarged, that's measureless. Then she reflects in this way, even this liberation of the mind, which is love, is produced and intended. And whatever is produced and intended is impermanent and is subject to cessation. In understanding in this way, uh, he becomes established in this moment and in this understanding, and all are certain of the obstructions or influences are eliminated, the harmful influences. And therefore, this is one of the descriptions of using a Brahma Vihara, such as Metta, as one's path to liberation. One can do it in a sitting, in a retreat over one's lifetime, that, that becomes the main, uh, one's main sort of primary um, uh, su- uh, meditation subject, doing the Metta, directing it out building it up to such a degree of concentration, the mind becomes untroubled. Agitation falls away. And then one reflects on the very consciousness of, of metta with mindfulness, with insight, and sees its impermanent nature, its selfless nature. And such an insight can have a irreversible transformation of consciousness where uh, to some degree are all degrees of attachment, uh, aversion, and delusion fall away. It's a path of, of dhamma pleasures and healing and empowerment, one that we should all know about, one that co- was commonly practiced uh, in the time of the Buddha, And many traditions today, uh, including in Burma, uh, use this as a basis. The four Brahma-viharas are often uh, used in analogy to having four children. Uh, And the parent relating to the baby, as Michelle was describing last night, the mother cow, would relate to uh, a newborn This naturally, without effort, without thought, uh, instinctively care for it unconditionally, even though it's crying and pooping and keeping us up all night or whatever. We just feel that love. Uh, Likewise, the parent with a newborn child feels the same way. The second child may be sickly, and the response to that child is one of uh, tender compassion, uh, a response of care to their suffering. You know, not negativity, not aversion, not fear of that suffering, but total presence and love in the form of compassion, love in the form of that what touches pain or suffering. And a third child may be. Um, you know, kind of hitting their stride on their own, individuating from their parents and uh, finding their own successes in, in their life at school or socially or uh, in sports or art and whatnot. Uh, that's the love of a parent for the child enjoying success. And the fourth is uh, that a child that now is leaving home. You know, after they've grown, grown up and gone to school and, you know, spent sufficient time at home, which these days can be 20, 25, 30, 35 or 40. And you know, finally they go off on their own, and the parents can at last let them follow their own path uh, with, with equanimity. They're going to meet their joys and sorrows, uh, you, know, according to their own actions, according to natural law. And there's a, no lack of feeling for their suffering, no lack of feeling for their joys, their successes, but also this calm acceptance, and, you know, and usually a wise non-interference. Their lives. Metta we might experience as a as a radiant um, quality in the mind, a bright. Quality psychologically as a uh, as a tender feeling. Some people were describing in today's interviews, you know, a softness, uh, a softness around the heart. Some people described it more um, kinesthetically, you know, in the body, like tingly feelings. Others uh, more that uh, that brightness of mind, or as an attitude. You know that uh, I'm okay just as I am or the person they're sending the metta to. You know, it, it, When it's the moments that it's not conditional that we send that love, they don't have to change and be something else to be worthy, to be deserving of the love. But rather, you know, may you be happy just as you are, or at peace with, with things just as they are. That's how we cultivate unconditional love now. That's how we make it so pure. Here and now. This kind of metta is free of likes and dislikes, of preferences. There's already an element of equanimity in in, in the metta when we when it's pure. It's, it's very balanced. There's an openness, a sense of oneness, and an experience of our own deep kindness. And we also experience that in return. When we experience metta from others, we feel an openness. We feel a oneness. We feel a kindness toward us. We both recognize the goodness in other people, and it's very affirming when we sense someone recognizing the goodness within us, our core goodness, our core preciousness. Karuna, or compassion, um, could be described as a as a fearless presence in the face of suffering. I remember at my dad's, when my dad was the last moments of his of his life. It was kind of unexpected. You know, he was dying a slower death and a more um, a more ugly death by cancer. But he had a sudden, he had a heart attack. And, um, and uh, so, you know, there it was, at first kind of panicking and calling in nurses and doctors. He's in the hospital. In fact, he was gonna, we were going to take him home the next day. And he said he just felt something in his stomach, and then he took a long, indescribable look into my mother's eyes took an in-breath, and that was it. There was no out-breath. Just the body succumbed. And, um, you know, I felt all kinds of feelings. I felt panic, and I felt grief, and, uh, and I also felt the significance and importance of the moment, of the transition. And I garnered up everything in my practice, um uh mind and was present Just made myself fearlessly present for something i had never been so close to so that i could also feel gratitude i could also talk to him and spend an hour and a half in the room you know and sort of guiding him out and doing metta saying finishing saying what i needed to say you know to him luckily I had had the last eight months of being able to look after him and, and learned about that quality of, of being present so that he wasn't uncomfortable. It's kind of hard sometimes with one's parents. So you get scared and you want them to be well and you want them to be a certain way. Same with a child. Uh, but they feel that energy. So you know, true compassion uh, is without aversion are without fear. Those are the near enemies. And, uh, and, and as free as possible from the, the suffering and grief. Suffering and grief certainly arise. Uh, but we need to feel them and still maintain that powerful and, and fearless presence. And, and that's what let my dad be open. Let me change him, you know, and hug him again, kiss him again, which I hadn't since I was 12, and comfort him, massage him, and so forth. It's also, karuna is the same experience, you know, when we're suffering. We don't want to feel people there who are agitated and uncomfortable, can't wait to leave, you know, or the sense of them feeling pity toward us. it doesn't feel good, then we just as soon have them go, you know. Don't you need to go to lunch now or something? You know, get out of here. <laughs> but someone who's really totally there, and and just and a witness to and empathic to our suffering, feeling it, you know it. There's no question. You know if they're there or not. This is what makes a, a you know a, a vast difference in the uh, in the healing professions between you know, a healing professional doctor or nurse who has that quality of compassion, who has that presence, versus one who's just, its for them, they could just as well be a mechanic. So this karuna, sense of care, of being cared for in, in, in the last year's Uh, My dad died about seven years ago. My mom's gone steadily downhill. And at first, I really needed her to be a certain way. You know, um, as as dementia began to set in, I'd first be impatient. I'd want her to remember things. Uh, I wouldn't want her to keep repeating things. Uh, It was kind of frustrating, and, and I didn't like it. I knew I didn't like it, and... I, I, I had to work really hard at times, you know, needing her to be different and trying to convince her that she already said what she said or didn't, you know, didn't need to be talking in these sort of delusional ways. Now, uh, I feel mudita when I'm around her. I feel this empathetic joy. I've, I've learned to be the parent. She's the child. And I I love going over there. And, you know, she loves being pampered. And she's still able to be at home. She knows that she's at home. And, you know, I I make jokes when she's talking delusional things. She lives on on the ocean, and the house sits on, you know, a cement foundation. Under that is just huge boulders, and then the ocean a few feet down. And she's been talking lately about, you know, there's a downstairs place here. And, okay, Mom, and tell me that every few days. And I was home a week ago, and she's again saying, uh, you know, should we go downstairs? And I said, well, actually, you know, Mom, Chandra, my, my daughter, and, uh, uh, and Michelle's stepdaughter, help to raise. Chandra's coming this summer. She can stay down there. And then we'll all go down there and enjoy the room downstairs. And, <laughs> and she talks about this field that we can walk to out there. Well, out there is the ocean. And I said, oh, okay, Mom, but we have to put on our bathing suits and our swim fins. <laughs> and she'll just laugh. So just she'll, she'll get somehow that She's a little off, you know, and because I'm not resistant to it, she'll just laugh, and I'm sort of taking delight in her graciousness and her appreciation. Every day she says how lucky she feels to be at home, to be cared for. She's 93 now. So mudita is a, that unfettered, profound joy in just being, and particularly it's the empathic Enjoyment of others others' joy in being or others' success others' accomplishment, and feeling that when it 's directed toward ourselves, you know we are raised in a culture with heavy stress on competitiveness and uh, uh, comparing and, and getting ahead and you know succeeding at the expense of others and it actually breeds envy and jealousy, which happen to be the far enemy of empathetic joy. Comparing envy, and jealousy. Uh, so it's a, such a delight and such a transformation of a lot of our emotional condition patterning to be able to both uh, feel appreciation for others' joy and to feel appreciated you know when we're happy and when we're successful and doing well at, with, with with what we love that's uh, that's murita uh, chandra by the way and this is you know with her permission when it when it's helpful to people went through a few really difficult years in, with addiction And it got to where we were all quite scared. And every time a phone rang in the middle of the night, you know, it was jarring and many sleepless nights. Uh, And a, 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 a real effort and energy to get it together and provide a moment for her to make a choice to be helped or not. And for her to choose that. Be helped go through a treatment program, and you know now a couple years later, really, really flourishing. Uh, And I helped her register uh, last year in Boulder, Colorado, at the. You know she still has a couple. Well, now one year of university left to register at the Naropa School, uh, where thirty years ago. Uh, at its very opening, I was introduced to this practice kind of full full circle so she's she 's doing wonderful she 's getting all a 's and you know involved in yoga and drama and writing and just really having really flourishing it 's a beautiful moment to feel murita for her now so when love when the ground of love touches suffering. One might feel one's heart quiver in genuine, genuine, empathic response. When this ground of love, of metta, touches delight, joy, one might feel their heart dance in celebration, in resonance with the person's uh, happiness. Upeka is. Is equanimity, non reactiveness, non attachment. All the same, you hear all these words used. It's just a real serene acceptance or wideness of mind that, that holds the continuum of joy and sorrow, changing all the time, experienced all the time, every moment, every day, and throughout our lives, in ourselves in our loved ones, in all beings on the planet. Everyone is subject to experiencing uh, uh, tremendous joy, tremendous sorrow. Equanimity is, is that wide mind that, can, that understands, is able to hold it all without being reactive. So reactive would mean uh, aversion, dislike to what's unpleasant, what's painful. And it would be grasping, attachment, clinging to what's pleasant, what's successful, you know, what is a gain and not a loss. Either way, that reactiveness is a is a closing of the heart and mind. We shut down a great degree of life as it is. Non reactiveness, it's not always so pleasant, but we're really in touch with things as they are really in touch with our own and others' lives. In that way, our empathy, our love, our compassion is all the more strong and pure and fearless and present. The equanimity is an essential, it's, a, it's the rudder that navigates us through our lives. And the purest metta, the purest karuna, compassion, the purest mudita, empathetic joy, arises from this kind of equanimity. The far enemy reactiveness. The near enemy looks like equanimity, but it's indifferent. It's not caring. It's insensitive. It's disconnected. Authentic equanimity is deeply, profoundly connected, intimately connected, sensitive, caring. And sometimes just a subtle but crucial difference. And what knows the difference is wisdom you know, and the practice of it. So all these, all these um, Brahma-viharas, they're quite fluid, dynamic emotions in us. They, they expand our life. They connect their, uh, their immediate responses to things as they are. You know, we don't have to calculate in practice, it's like a training ground, kind of sussing out you know, the seed of metta, the seed of uh, joy, the seed of compassion, and so forth, and giving it attention because it's a powerful practice to do and to put our awareness uh, singularly on that quality enhances it and immediately allows us to deal with its opposites or its masquerades. So we're in an intensive that 's why this is called intensive you know practice intensive meditation we 're in a pressure cooker you know we 're all wearing magnifying glasses, everything we 're seeing really close up and you know it 's kind of hard to operate our denial systems here when we 're wearing these magnifying glasses and uh, when we 're sitting with nothing to do and walking with nothing to do, our escape routes become you know, more and more challenging. they limited to lunch and <laughs> the bulletin board and the uh, labels on our shampoo. <laughs> you know that's how we start to busy our mind if we can these these um these Brahma Viharas because we're practicing them all under the context of the vipassana, that is the wisdom practice, they are not eye-centered responses to life. You know, we, we begin to, to see the this, this selfless nature of love, even when it's toward ourselves. And the, the wisdom in compassion, it's not about oneself, we're not invested in an ego-centered way of getting rid of someone's compassion. We want them to be free, uh, but we know that if you, even if we cannot remove their suffering, that our very genuine presence there is an alleviation of their identification to their suffering, because we're not identified with it. Likewise with, with the, with the mudita and equanimity, They're not I-centered responses, emotional responses to life. They're selfless responses to life. And therefore they dissolve. Often we find a kind of dissolution of the subject-object duality in our experience. When someone passes away in Burma, um, In the Buddhist tradition, often you'll find two very complementary, but maybe seemingly opposite um, responses. And one is to chant, uh, you, know, a chant about how all things are impermanent and pass away, you know, like when the great Mahasi Sayadaw passed away. Uh, about eight months after I was uh, ordained by him, there were three hundred thousand people who had come all over from all over Burma to Rangoon to attend his funeral procession and in uh, all the great monasteries that sent nuns and monks who were, were chanting uh, this this sutta on Anicca, how whatever is born or whatever is created, or whatever arises, has the nature to pass away. You know, and having this understanding releases the heart. It's a very sobering response to death. But also, they'll chant the Metta Sutta. You know, which we you all chant every night. I took some of my father's ashes to to Burma in nineteen. 19- Ninety-seven, And uh, just before uh, a retreat there at the Chaswell Monastery, we went out in the the, Sayadaw, the abbot's boat, about 30 of us, 20 yogis and 10 nuns from one of the uh, mon- uh, nearby nunneries that uh, our project uh, supports. And, and that's exactly what they did. They were first a t- uh, a chanting on Anicca, Chant, you know, that just as my father, you know, came into this world and was born, you know, so too would he age and decay and pass away. Uh, There's a certain beauty in just saying the truth, just as it is. Uh, Equally a beauty in in the loving kindness, chanting the loving kindness sutta. Beautiful thing. You know, sort of Dhamma tears taste of grief but also immense gratitude and and that um that wide heart that develops from understanding one might wonder what effects this practice has you know you can see it in in two major ways. We have a week to do this particular practice, most of us. And one application of doing the metta as we're doing it uh, as a meditation is strengthening the, the parami of metta, that is the spiritual virtue of it. It's bringing about concentration because we're focused on the metta. It, the concentration uh, may grow you know, deep enough to be a great basis for those of you going on into the the Vipassana next week. Uh, But being concentrated and the the continuation throughout the day of practicing metta and maybe some of these other Brahma Viharas later, it begins to percolate deep in the mind, into our thinking process, right down to the intentional level. Uh, And it will influence the way we think. It will influence the way we speak it'll influence the way we uh, act with our bodies the more we practice it you know the more we see in ourselves or recognize in other well that's bodily metta that's vocal metta when we hear the quality of speech the tone the words used our own or others those are you know metta thoughts you know not just to say loving kindness things but it's the expression you feel the expression of metta no matter what someone is saying, just in how they treat other beings. So this is the parami um, path of metta. An- another path for those who have done a lot of metta or have a lot of time to do more is a metta jhana, where it goes to deep levels of concentration, even absorption. Uh, that where one, f- one becomes fully absorbed, sinks into the brahma vihara completely one with the metta one can have moments of that you know during the week of of parami practice and and uh, and at such a time where you may do a longer period of practice to do the, the metta jhanas really strengthens the metta other brahma viharas in the mind stream you know, we really begin to more and more think out of these brahmaviharas Viharas, compassion, equanimity, joy and so forth. Speak out of them. Live out of them. Our body chemistry can change from the degree we use. You know, we know how, how sour we can feel if we, if, we, if we spend a few hours with anger, you know, or jealousy. Or, you know, our bodies don't feel very good and tone of our voice, you know, know, salty mood. Likewise, you know, imagine spending more and more time with these thoughts and compassionate uh, speech and and joy actions of the body and so forth. That really has a, a deep biochemical effect on our bodies and how we live. And sometimes we don't see it, you know, but like when you throw a stone into a pond and the ripples go out patterns go out maybe you throw another stone and patterns go out maybe a third I and mean, a fourth stone and still all these patterns somehow begin to intertwine and they still look like patterns they still look you know like some amazing uh artistical uh, and beautiful formation of nature that's what happens that's the symmetry that happens when we do things and act out of this metta, a single gift or, uh, or, or word, a, a thought, some action, a single act with, with a good intention, a pure intention, uh, like the rippling of, of the pond from throwing stones in, spreads outward invisibly in great and mysterious ways, having effects on people and on the future, uh, and consequences that we, we may never even know. But sometimes we do. And sometimes we ask, you know, how are all these good things happening? How come I feel like I'm in this field of loving kindness? And, you know, that's it. That's the reason why. Somehow, somewhere along the line, you threw those good intention stones in the pond and it sent out these kinds of ripples. It's long been known that there's a connection between the um, Polynesian uh, seafarers, seafaring society of the last um, four or five thousand years. For the present-day Hawaiians, it's been two thousand years since they arrived in Hawaii, and and in the north, in the northwest, the First Nations people of Canada or Native Americans of Alaska and probably lower down Washington and Oregon as well. Uh, and in very recent years there's been a resurgence in the, in the northwest coast of the heritage and, and pride in their seafaring past uh, largely sparked by the connection with, with the Hawaiians who uh, in the mid-70s began to Um, reclaim their heritage their their seafaring past and culture and community and spirituality by rebuilding these double hull canoes and sailing them back to where they came from Marquesas and Tahiti and uh, Rapa Nui, Easter Island Uh, and then they wanted to build as indigenous or endemic uh, a double hull canoe as they could but had no wood as all old, as all rotten, it had all been logged—the koa hardwood. So they came to see this elder in Alaska, um, and his name was uh, Judson Brown, uh, and make a connection. And it's these connections, and certain tools, and ideas, and terminologies, uh, and evidence from their chants that they know that there's been a connection. There's no physical, archaeological evidence as yet. But something connected them a long time ago. And it could be even far longer than we imagine. And as I was in Siberia a couple years ago with Usumana and Chandra and learned a little bit about the... That it was considered the Siberian shamans didn't necessarily only travel over the Bering Strait during a previous ice age and then down the northwest corridor that it's thought that they also could have been uh, uh, sailors on canoes on the shorelines then, which would have been very different. Uh, uh, And so who knows where the first ripples occurred, where the first stones were cast but uh, my a friend of ours, Nainoa Thompson, the first Hawaiian navigator trained by an elder from Micronesia, met with this Judson Brown, said, we, we're looking for, we're looking for wood that we can build this double-haul canoe. And, um, uh, they were showed what they have in their forests there. And, uh, Nainoa said, "Well, how you know how much would it be?" And Judson Brown, the elder, said, uh, "Never ask what it cost, and never give back a gift," implying that it would be a gift. And something didn't feel right with Nainoa, and so he and and the other some other crew members went back and spoke with elders in Hawaii, who said. I understand why you feel this way. What you might do first is plant more koa trees, the original hardwood trees. So they they planted 12,000 of them on the big island. And once they started growing up, they went back to see Judson, and the, the trees were offered, these massive, massive trees. 415 years old and, and uh, eight feet wide, and uh, very ceremoniously, with great respect, you know, felled the trees, knowing that it per- had a great purpose in building community and the restoration of a past almost lost, almost forgotten. So that was done, and then, and then they began to sail this new double hull canoe called the uh, Hawaii Loa. And they brought it to they brought it to um, Canada in nineteen ninety five, some years after they finished building it. And from there they sailed up to Alaska into the village of Judson Brown in the community to pay their respects, to thank them. And they you know, went into their simple huts and a grand a grandmother sent her grandson out to spread a blanket and offer all the money that the village could gather, you know, $100 bills. And again, Nainoa felt, you know, he said, I don't know how to respond. And and Judson said, young man, we measure our wealth by what we give, not by what we accumulate. And that's how our culture has survived for 12,000 years. That's why we still have these trees, and so with a great understanding of generosity and the mysterious interconnectedness of of gift giving and compassion and love, you know they've gone back, and it's become an awakening in the Pacific, in Polynesia, Polynesian Pacific, uh, where now many of this. Pacific Islanders are rebuilding canoes, and right now the Hokulea, the original double-hole sailing canoe, is sailing as we speak in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, kind of tracking uh, what's going on in our oceans and the wildlife and the endangered uh, species and whatnot, uh, all with non-instrument navigation, all by following the stars and currents and migration of birds and colors of the sky, all the turbulent systems. And they have daily satellite phone contact with uh, school classrooms, you know, with, with children. So they can bring up a new generation of, of people who care and, and, and go forward by knowing the past, you know, which is what we do with our practice. We, we, we get trained in these ancient uh, traditions uh, of the Buddhist teachings of... Metta, Karuna, Murita, equanimity, and the Vipassana practices, we make them our, our, our own. We anchor you know, in the lineages and, and we pass them on to next generations. That's how it works. That's what a transmission is. Uh, and the next time I'll talk, I'll talk about these, um, these practices uh, as a transmission of energy, as a release of energy, as, a, as an opening, how they actually heal, how they unfold knots and tangles and psychic folds within us uh, that are both painful to hold and tremendously uh, joyful to release, you know, a reclamation of zest and passion and energy and enthusiasm that have long been uh, locked away. So I'll finish with advice to myself by Louise Erdrich. Leave the dishes. Let the celery rot in the bottom drawer of the refrigerator, and an earthen scum harden on the kitchen floor. Leave the black crumbs in the bottom of the toaster. Throw the cracked bowl out, and don't patch the cup. Don't patch anything. Don't mend. Buy safety pins. Don't even sew on a button. Let the wind have its way, then the earth that invades as dust, and then the dead foaming up in gray rolls underneath the couch. Talk to them. Tell them they are welcome. Don't keep all the pieces of the puzzles uh, or the dolls' tiny shoes in pairs. Don't worry who uses whose toothbrush or if anything matches at all. Accept one word to another, or a thought. Pursue the authentic. Decide first what is authentic, then go after it with all your heart. Your heart, that place you don't even think of cleaning out, that closet stuffed with savage mementos. Don't sort the paper clips from screws from saved baby teeth or worry if we were eating cereal for dinner again, don't answer the telephone ever or weep over anything at all that breaks. Pink molds will grow within those sealed cartons in the refrigerator. Accept new forms of life (laughs) and talk to the dead who drift in through the screen windows, who collect patiently on the tops of food jars and books, Recycle the mail. Don't read it. Don't read anything except what destroys the insulation between yourself and your experience or what pulls down or what strikes at or what shatters this ruse you call necessity. Appreciate in those moments when the barriers fall away the cool warmth of metta.